I'm Bruce Worson, pastor of His Place Community Church. The following message came from a Sunday morning right here at His Place. Could Jesus have had second thoughts on the cross? We'll give you a moment to ponder that. I made a whole movie on it, The Last Temptation of Christ, about his second thoughts on the cross. I'll give you a moment to ponder that because we've got some catching up to do because I haven't been here for two weeks and I miss y'all. Shara and I just flew back from Hawaii. That sounds like a setup to a joke. It's not. We just flew back from Hawaii where we celebrated the first birthday. I haven't been able to go over there for over a year. The first birthday of grandson, grandson number five. Yep, it is just easier to call him by their number now. But his name is COVID. No, that's, it's not. It should be, but it's not. Uh, it's Otis, like the elevator, and like my great-grandpa, Grandpa Otis. Um, at the party, we had a big party over there in Hawaii. And uh, it's all young families. And there's these young fathers all uh, grouping around, and I'm kind of standing on the outskirts of them listening. And I didn't know this was, a sub, uh, this was a subject to be discussed, but it was really, I thought, funny. Um, they're talking seriously about needing dad jokes. Like, oh, our kids are getting old. We're going to need dad jokes. Where do you get dad jokes? And anybody know a dad joke? And they, between them, they knew two, and they were not good. And no, for, for dad jokes, even. And then they all turned toward the old man, and they said, do you know any dad jokes? Get your pencils out, boys. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't nod. I didn't affirm or say yes. I just stepped forward, leaned in, and said, well, I'll, I'll tell you, I switched all the labels on my wife's spice rack. And I haven't felt the heat yet, but the time is cumin. <laughs> the rest is a 10-minute blur. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the flight, the flight was a bit turbulent. We had turbulence going over, a few coming back, some big ones going over. Does not bother me at all. I like uh, a rough boat ride, plane ride, car ride. I just, I, I like that. What I don't like are takeoffs and landings because if you know, if you know anything about flying, that's what gets you. And so I always, I always check in. It's like up in the air, do whatever, bounce me around because anything goes wrong, we got a lot of room to figure things out. Uh, so I always check in with the Lord, right, right as we take off or right as we land, and I say something very close to this, uh, in, in all seriousness, I say, Father, and because my heart starts beating real fast, I say, Father, if this is it, get ready to catch me. <laughs> and that's what I picture. Get ready to catch me, uh, because I, I'm in your hands. I'm in your hands. And I pray a version of that every time we take off, every time we land, and I pray it, and okay, and then I fix my eyes on the flight attendants, usually the ones sitting right in the front, even if I have to do this. Uh, not, you know, and I just, I stare at their eyes, not in a, well, actually, you know, from their perspective, it probably is a creepy way, but I'm not trying to be a creeper, uh, but I stare at their eyes because I don't know which noises and movements <laughs> are alarming and which, oh yeah, it's just normal. But their eyes tell it all. And if you, if you have a hard time on planes, do this because it's very calming. As long as their eyes say everything's under control, you know, it's like, oh, the wing dip, and I look up and they're just texting. <laughs> it's like, as long as their eyes say everything's under control, I know we're all safe. 
And it's, this whole fear is just kind of funny because like I say, normally I don't mind the rough stuff, the risky stuff doesn't bother me. And also some of you know I was a pilot. And so that's, that's a little strange, but that might be why it bothers me so much because I, I understand. I got my license when I was 20, also got a perm. <laughs> One was a mistake. <laughs> uh, but I'm never afraid of a takeoff or a landing when I flew because I was in control. There's something about being in control. It, it is different when you're in control. Your eyes are fixed on a goal, so the fears kind of go away. It's when you have to put your life in someone else's hands. And that's what faith is all about. Putting your life in someone else's hands and trusting them. And that's really hard to do. Today I want to visit an old friend. Someone I feel like I, I'm, I know. See, at Easter, I always look around the cross and the empty tomb, look at all the, the cast of real-life characters, situations, circumstances surrounding the whole process, because I like to choose someone for us to see it through. It's like, I want to see it through their eyes, their eyes this time. With my setup, you might think it's going to be pilot. That's kind of a dad joke, too. Uh, close, close. We're going to be looking at Pilate's uh, right-hand man, a guy we haven't checked in on. This surprised me. Haven't checked in on for five years now, and I kind of miss him. It's the centurion, the centurion at attention at the crucifixion, who suddenly realizes who's actually in control of the situation, fixes, we're told, fixes his eyes on Jesus' face. And then takes his own life into his hands, risks everything, and suddenly, unexpectedly, publicly declares, surely this man was the son of God. That is treason. Every Roman coin in his day declared Caesar as son of the divine. It was his title, and only Caesar could be called the son of God. So what possible reason could this centurion, the commander of the cross, have for this treasonous act, for being the first to declare that after Jesus' death? Jesus saved a lot of folks when he was alive and a lot of folks when he came back to life. I don't know how many he saved while he was temporarily dead, but he sure saved this guy. So what could have caused him to do what he did. Well, to start with, and, and we kind of miss this unless you really harmonize the stories, he's rebuking the crowd. All those who had been mocking Jesus were told, those who passed by hurled insults at Jesus. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. And then it says, in the same way. You know, that was like their big punchline because they wanted to stone him once for you. You say you're the Son of God. And so that was the big thing they were upset with. So in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. Blah, blah, blah. If you are the son of God, and this Gentile, non-Jew, no dog in the fight, military commander, who had every reason not to say this, had had so much of enough that he suddenly yells, surely this man was the son of God. Interesting guy. Interesting guy. I mean, to become a centurion, the leader, the soldiers, that means, we know, that means he's battle-hardened, death-desensitized. This guy has killed 
and inflicted pain and suffering to a degree we cannot begin to imagine. But you know, I like him. <laughs> you take the good with the bad. <laughs> Maybe just the most barbaric killer. But he was the one chosen as the servant of the cross to declare that. And if you're a non-Jew, he's our guy. This is the moment that Jesus started reaching out. He came from the house of Israel, but everything prophesies there will come a point where he begins to declare outside the house through the Gentiles to the Gentiles. Yes, our guy. This old centurion, he has seen countless crucifixions, and there is a pattern. It starts with raging and, and cursing. That's why they, you know, numb him up and uh, give him the narcotics at the beginning, which Jesus refused. He saw that. He saw that. You know, no, no raging, no cursing, and not, not drugged up. Then there's bargaining and pleading, and then despair and sobbing, and finally we're told madness. Madness, because you just, as soon as you drop your head, you die. You know, you suffocate. And so you just, it comes that point. And sometimes it lasts for a couple days. Totally could have gone up two to three days. And then, and then finally death comes. But, Mark writes, when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, it was so life-altering, whatever it was he heard and saw, that he said, surely this man was the Son of God. Medical experts agree, and you and I, we know this, I just need to repeat it so that we have it fresh in our mind, that Jesus suffered one of the most grueling, torturous, horrendous, painful forms of capital punishment ever devised. Straining for each breath while enduring a symphony of pain because you have to keep it, keep it, keep it but every time you pushed against the nails and the ropes and all. Told, you know, there'd be bodies be filled with cramps and spasms and then the mind with panic and terror. And then there was the exposure and the humiliation. It was done nude. We, we put a little loincloth on them for, for our sakes. It's humiliation. And then finally, exhaustion and suffocation. So what that guy hear and see that would cause him to do what he did? We go clear back, beginning with the abuse at Pilate's. This guy was there. Jesus was beaten and whipped and everything else at Pilate's. Crown of thorns, spit on. This guy had his eyes fixed on Jesus the whole time. You know how I know? It was his job. This is the guy that was in charge of watching Jesus. And through it all, I'll tell you what he saw. He saw that Jesus radiated compassion throughout his crucifixion. That makes him a one-off. That makes him bizarre. I mean, my goodness, we're, we're not told everything, but we are told that while he was nailed on the cross, he made living arrangements for his mother. So, do you not have more important things on your mind? No, no, I'm just very concerned with everyone else. He comforted the, the, the thief that was insulting him most of the day, and then all of a sudden starts fearing for his own eternity, and Jesus starts comforting the, the thief dying beside him, who'd been insulting him. And as his, the biggie, the biggie, as his tormentors are hissing, if you are the son of God, he's up there asking God to forgive them for what they're saying. 
and saying that I, they just don't understand. It's like, I, I, they just don't understand. Yeah, for this centurion, this is not a typical day at the office. You know, the Lord had, had talked about this actually. And boy, I wish I could read you about five chapters out of Isaiah. But here's one little verse. <laughs> Lord had said through Isaiah, I will gather all nations. Now, we're talking all non-Jewish nations and tongues, which we call Gentiles. Most of us are. And they shall come and see my glory. I will set a sign among them. Is that literal? I mean, why not? I will set a sign among them. And they shall declare my glory among the Gentiles. Well, starting with guess who? The, the Gentile that just nailed a literal sign above Jesus' head, hailing him as king of the Jews. That guy. So uh, Luke says, so when the centurion, the non-Jewish Roman centurion, saw what had happened, he fulfilled it. He glorified God, saying, certainly this was a righteous man. Now he's preaching. Now he's preaching. Before you could have said, well, he's just so mad at those jerks. Now, now he's preaching. And, the, and then look at the reaction. The whole crowd who came together to that site, these are the mockers. The whole crowd that came together for the spectacle, you know, to, to mock and to watch what they thought would be a fear-fueled fight with death to his dying breath. Grrr. Well, seeing what had been done, both seeing what the centurion saw and heard, which we'll get to in a minute, and then being rebuked by the centurion himself and seeing a Gentile turn to Christ and fulfilled by Zim. <laughs> well, it says they beat their breasts and return. They beat their breasts. That's interesting. Luke writes this. Luke's the only one who records a parable that uses that term. And it's a tax collector who beats his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And now Luke writes, and they beat their breasts and went home. What's everybody seeing? It's so life-altering. For one, like I just mentioned, they just saw when that centurion cried out with everything to lose and not a Jew, they just saw what Jesus had publicly predicted the day before. The day before, John chapter 12. If you want a, a chapter to read today at Easter, John chapter 12 because they talk all about Isaiah and all about the Gentiles. It's right before the cross. And the Greeks, the non-Jews, come to see Jesus. And they, hey, all the Greeks want to see you. And, and Jesus says, well, my, the hour has come for me to be glorified. Because that's, and then they go on with Isaiah. Because that's what it's all about. The whole world, all the people being drawn. Because he came for the house of Israel. But then there would come a day when he would then reach out to the world. Turns out that day was the moment he died on the cross. And so in John chapter 12, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified first by the centurion. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Well, we know who it is. The first one is the centurion. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. See, and the Jews who knew the scriptures when the centurion glorified Jesus went, oh my goodness, he said yesterday that the guy would be here. Because he says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will do what Isaiah said. 
I'll begin. I'll draw all people to myself, beginning with guess who? He goes on to say, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. And the next day, you remember the three hours of darkness? Because these are all references to Isaiah. That, the darkness always gets me. Because no one tells us what Jesus did during the darkness. Whatever Jesus endured, and I guarantee it is unimaginable. God veiled it in darkness. It was not intended for public display. But that Roman had a front row seat to what Simeon, the prophet, had prophesied at Jesus' dedication when Jesus was just eight days old. He said, my eyes have seen, he was really old, my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before, he's quoting Isaiah about the Gentiles, before the face of all peoples, a light to bring revelation to the Gentiles. And Isaiah, I'll just pick up where he kind of leaves off. Isaiah says, uh, on behalf of the Lord, I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness and will give you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the Gentiles, those who sit in darkness. There's a lot about these people sitting in darkness. In fact, quoting Isaiah regarding those Gentiles who are sitting in darkness, Matthew writes, the people who are sitting in darkness saw great light. And those who were sitting in the land and shadow of death, upon them a light has dawned. Did you know the centurion was sitting in the dark? In the shadow of the cross? Do you know he was sitting? <laughs> it's funny because that's how Matthew, as uh, soon as Jesus put up on the cross, he gets right to it. And sitting down, they kept Watch over him there. The Gentiles sitting in the dark and in the shadow. What did he see in that darkness all alone with his thoughts? I can kind of tell you. I don't know in what way it manifested. But I'll tell you what he saw because we're told in John that in Jesus, in him, was life. And that life was the light of men. The light, it, it shines in the darkness, but the darkness, most of it hadn't understood it. And though the world, listen to this, though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. Hebrews goes on to say, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Colossians picks up, for by him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, and in him all things hold together. This is why this is all so important, because this moment, these three hours of darkness, this is when the light of the world took on the full weight of the darkness of sin and death for everyone who's ever been or ever will forevermore. And the entire cosmos strained under the load and it 
big old brown out, just but it stayed on. As for three hours, straining under the load, as Jesus paid each and every individual debt at the speed of light. When the cosmos powered back up, it was finished. It was finished. And that centurion was ready. I can't wait to find out what he saw in the dark. But boy, was he ready. Luke tells us Jesus said, uh, Jesus said a couple things. We're skipping to the end. The last thing he said, because he's just, just a few comments he makes. But this is, this is what got that centurion up on his feet. We're told he cried out. Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. And I'll tell you right now, it's by choice. You know how I know? John, John tells us, John tells us how he died. He says, bowing his head, which cuts off the air. It's what everyone tries not to do. Remember how Pilate was in shock that he's already dead? People can't die this fast on a cross. Unless they bow their head. Bowing his head, he gave up. It's paradidio, paradidomi. It, it, only John uses it here. It literally means to commit into another's hands. What Luke uh, says he cried out, John says he did. He committed into the Father's hands his spirit. He bowed his head and said, here you go. I'm in your hands. Matthew uses a different word. He says, yielded up. Afiami. He's the only one to use that. Very specific word. Do you know, no one says he died. They all say it, but they all have a way of putting him in charge of it. Matthew's word literally means he sent away, he sent forth like you would a servant, his spirit. He bowed his head, he breathed, he said, Father, in your hands I commit my spirit, and he bowed his head, and he committed his spirit, and he breathed his last, and he sent his spirit away. You know, to meet back up on Easter, hey, I'll see, this old body going to see you again. Easter morning. These are not euphemisms for Jesus' death. They're descriptions. He breathed his last. It's how he died. It's what that tough-skinned, death-numb, decorated old commander made a spontaneous, treacherous public confession because of. Which, of course, Jesus knew all along he was going to do because he knows us and he knows this guy. Oh, my goodness, I know what's going to get you from the moment he saw him. The moment you see a truly fearless, because you may think you've seen fearlessness. No, when you truly see fearless expression of trust and conviction and love and power under perfect control. Oh, it's all over. You're my guy. You ever wonder why God chose crucifixion? So barbaric. So why God want that? There's a reason. Of all the forms of public execution, you know, whether it's beheading or burning or hanging or stoning or, you know, more modern electrocution, gas chamber, lethal injection, firing squad, only one. Only crucifixion is suited for God's purpose. 
because only the cross offered control to the one facing death. You could just, you could do that. Granted, Jesus is most likely the only one to ever exercise such control. Most, you know, if not all, struggled till the bitter end, going mad in the process. That's what TV Jesus does. You know, the cheesy Jesus that we see on TV? That's what cheesy Jesus does. He struggles to stay alive, struggles to stay alive, and finally he dies, and then he drops his head, and they have it exactly backward from what Scripture says. Bowed his head before he died. He bowed his head and breathed his last. And that's what got the centurion on his feet at attention, eyes fixed. All of those things told in the scriptures. He thought he had seen it all. But as Mark says, when the centurion who was standing, now standing, see that? He's on his feet. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him, when he looks up at Jesus' face, who remember is bowing down, looking down, I got to think their eyes meet, saw the way he breathed his last by bowing his head in perfect peace. That's when he said, truly this, this man was the son of God. Because of all the things he'd ever seen from the most cowardly to the most heroic, he had never seen anything like that. And it shook him to his core and he didn't care. He just had to proclaim it. Because he saw in the place of terror, tenderness in the face of Jesus. He saw when he looked up and Jesus bowed down and he's standing right in front of him. He saw the tranquil eyes of a man with the weight of the world on his shoulders while beating death at its own game by powering up with nuclear reserves of absolute love, it's finished. No doubt about it. You think Jesus could have had second thoughts? Just ask that Roman with the front row seat. He'll put you in your place. Was it suicide? Jesus committed suicide? Yes, but... See, we mostly see suicide uh, as an overwhelmingly, because it mostly is, a negative, desperate, even self-centered action. But there is a rare form that we call heroic. Remember, Jesus talked about it. You give up your life for someone else. Lay down your life. When a soldier throws himself on a grenade to shield others, or a mother gives up her life to give birth. Jesus didn't take his life. He gave his life for you. And for me. And for everyone who ever was and will ever be. Whether they take him or not. I mean, there's a huge difference between taking and giving your life. Huge difference and no greater love. Jesus once said, the reason, and I think it means one of the reasons, obviously. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life. Only to take it up again. So it's not like we're glorifying suicide. To take it up again. No one, he wants us to know this, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. Because usually it's a sin. Suicide's a sin. But in this case, 
when it's temporary? <laughs> because his and authority to take it up again, uh, which is why it was okay in this very specific instance, because it's only temporary till Easter. And then he takes it up again. And according to Matthew, oh, I wish it could go in, but he got on the cutting floor. That uh, centurion seems to be the guy that got to see that too over at the uh, empty tomb. Yeah, you think Jesus might have had second thoughts? Think again. Jesus said, do you think, do you think I cannot call on my father, <laughs> I guess he has a New York accent, father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. In quick calculation, wait, that's 72,000. You see, Jesus was never not in full control of his crucifixion. That's what the centurion saw. And he fixed his eyes on Jesus. And I'll tell you what he saw in those eyes. We're all safe. And it's okay to put your life in his hands, even though at the moment can't really hug you. Jesus had an out all the way to the end. Had to, obviously. It wouldn't be much of a sacrifice if the high priest is reluctant to offer it. No, 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 no. That's not my Jesus. No, like, like with you, me, and the old centurion, the commitment has to be complete. Total, 100%. Because our Savior was completely and utterly committed as both our faithful offerer, the great high priest, and our willing offering, the Lamb who died for our sin. So as Hebrews says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who... For the joy, here's your reason now, for the joy set before him endured the cross. Instead of, you know, calling 12 legions of angels, get me off this thing. I'll tell you, if he had second thoughts, we would have known it. <laughs> because he could have just called those angels. There are no second thoughts. For this purpose I came. For the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. And sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Get it? Just fix your eyes on him. And everything's going to be okay. When it comes to the cross of Christ and putting our life in his hands, we're faced with the same four choices that old centurion. We could ignore it. Many do. Reject it, many do. Modify it, many do. Or, or get off our seat, <laughs> stand at attention, and admit it into our heart and then to the world. And I'll tell you, it's time. It's time to put your life in the Father's hands and fix your eyes on the Son of Man. And when you do, well, then you get to see what lit up that old centurion. Because we're told in 2 Corinthians that it is the glory of God in the face of Christ. But then, like father, like son. Let's pray. Father God, if this is it, and it might be for one or two of us, if this is it, get ready to catch us. 
because we are completely in your hands. Holy Spirit, convict our hearts whenever our commitment is less than complete and empower us to keep our eyes firmly fixed and our faith at full attention. Lord Jesus, whoa, we thank you for taking the weight of the world on your shoulders. And we praise you now, Lord, as our heroic high priest, our unflinching sacrifice, and of course, our risen Savior. And to that, everybody said, Amen. Well, thanks for listening in. Why don't you join us on a Sunday morning? If you'd like more information about the church, just point your browser to hisplacechurch.com. Until next time, may the Lord bless you, keep you, and make his face shine upon you. Thank you.